The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. May 11th, 2017. Thank you very much for listening and for shopping through my Amazon links at buzzburbank.com. So here's where we are. We have a president who has now fired at least two top officials investigating his ties to Russia, including the head of the FBI. We have a president who has refused to turn over to congressional investigators papers concerning the hiring and firing of a former national security advisor with ties to Russia. A president who's lawyered up. A president who's called reports of his Russian connections fake news. And now, at least one reporter has been arrested for asking a question to a Trump official. And we have a White House that says, there's nothing to see here. There are so many bone-chilling stories here, it's hard to know where to start. So we'll start here. In West Virginia, a 54-year-old reporter has been arrested after trying to ask a health care question of Health Secretary Tom Price. Price and presidential advisor Kellyanne Conway were at West Virginia State Capitol to talk about addressing that state's frightening problem with opioid abuse. Dan Heyman of Public News Service was there to do his job, which includes asking if the Republican bill to repeal and replace Obamacare includes the victims of domestic abuse among its pre-existing conditions. As Secretary Price and Ms. Conway walked through the halls, Heyman, a healthy distance away, shouted to get Price's attention. Not getting an answer, Heyman shouted his question again. Police informed Heyman he was, quote, in the wrong place even though the Capitol building in Charleston is a public venue crawling with reporters. Police say Heyman aggressively breached the Secret Service agents, despite witnesses who say Heyman never invaded anyone's personal space. The Secret Service itself took no action. But the police charged Heyman with willful disruption of government processes. You know, that cherished government process of walking down a public hallway. Now out of jail on a $5,000 bond, Heyman is being defended by the West Virginia branch of the American Civil Liberties Union, which calls his arrest a blatant attempt to chill an independent free press. These charges are outrageous, says the state's ACLU, and must be dropped immediately. There's more of the ACLU statement worth repeating, including, Dan Heyman was doing his job. He was fulfilling that sacred role of the media of holding elected officials accountable regarding issues of the day. For that, he was arrested. The First Amendment will prevail. The American Civil Liberties Union of West Virginia stands ready to fight any attempt by government to infringe upon our First Amendment rights. End quote. There are a thousand more reporters where Dan Heyman came from, and he too is now free to keep digging and to keep asking the tough questions. And while we're on the subject of a free press, Trump had a closed-door meeting with Russia's foreign minister at the White House yesterday. American photographers were banned from the room, but Russian photographers were in there. The only pictures that exist from that meeting are from a Russian news site. And former Deputy CIA Director David Cohen says letting Russian photographers shoot inside the Oval Office was not a good idea. And here's what we've learned this week, mostly through open congressional hearings. Before Donald Trump took office, President Obama personally advised Trump not to hire Mike Flynn as his national security advisor. There had already been reports that Flynn had received money from Russia and Turkey. But Trump didn't listen to Obama, and he didn't listen to the news. And he appointed Flynn anyway. 
Trump and Flynn began their new jobs on Friday, January 20th. On the following Tuesday, January 24th, FBI agents questioned Flynn about his work on behalf of foreign governments and about statements he'd made and about what Flynn hadn't revealed about that work. What the FBI agents heard from Flynn alarmed them so much they contacted the acting attorney general, Sally Yates, and another Justice Department official involved with national security. What Yates heard from the FBI agents was so alarming to her, she picked up the phone and called the White House counsel to tell him they need to speak in a secure location as soon as possible because it was important. On the afternoon of Thursday, January 26th, just six days into the Trump administration, Yates told the top White House lawyer that Mike Flynn had been lying to everyone about his work for Russia and that the White House had subsequently supported and repeated Flynn's lies, either accidentally or on purpose. Yates and the White House counsel met again the following day on Friday, January 27th. Yates says she told White House counsel Don McGahn that Flynn had also engaged in underlying conduct that was just as concerning as his lies. Yates wouldn't reveal that underlying conduct in an open congressional hearing because it is classified. There is some evidence Flynn offered to ease U.S. sanctions against Russia to repay Russia for the election meddling that put Trump over the top. Yates also advised the White House that because the Russians also knew that Flynn was lying about his contacts with their ambassador, they were then in a position to blackmail Flynn. Yates told the White House that its national security advisor wasn't just up to no good, wasn't just lying about it, but had made himself the target of blackmail that could give Russia a hand in forming U.S. foreign policy with the leverage Russia had. That was all on Thursday and Friday in the first full week of the Trump presidency. The White House now admits Trump was warned about Flynn by President Obama, and it admits that by that weekend, Trump himself knew that Flynn had been grilled by the FBI, that Flynn had lied, and that Trump's White House counsel had been warned that his national security official was compromised. Trump swung into action on Monday, firing Sally Yates, ostensibly for refusing to enforce his unconstitutional Muslim ban, but he kept Flynn on for nearly three more weeks. Trump waited until Americans had read the news about much of this before Trump ultimately also fired Mike Flynn. But in that three weeks, the compromised Flynn continued to listen and speak at the highest level national security meetings and even sat in on a phone call between Trump and Vladimir Putin. The White House says Trump kept Flynn on the job while the White House itself investigated him. But there's no evidence the White House actually conducted such an investigation, as it claims to have no papers about that, at least no papers that it's willing to turn over to investigators. The White House says it ultimately fired Flynn because he had lied to Vice President Pence about his conversations with the Russian ambassador. But there's reason to believe Pence knew the truth even as Flynn told his lies. Pence was in charge of the Trump transition team and responsible for vetting Trump's appointees. Flynn's lawyers during the transition had sent Pence two letters advising Pence of Flynn's foreign side jobs, so Pence had been notified twice in writing. Still, as recently as last month, Pence told a journalist after more news reports about Flynn's activities, first I've heard of it, prior to firing Flynn because of public pressure, Trump continued to call Flynn a wonderful man. Trump calls everything you have just heard to this point fake news and tweeted, the Trump-Russia collusion story is a total hoax. When will this taxpayer-funded charade end? But the investigations continue in the House and in the Senate, 
even though they're working without the investigative support of the FBI or the Justice Department. Now that Trump has fired the FBI director who was leading the counterintelligence investigation into the Trump campaign's ties to Russia. James Comey found out he'd been fired in the same way many of us did. He saw it on TV. Neither Trump nor anyone else in the administration had the courage or the class to fire Comey face-to-face, something Trump had no trouble with on Celebrity Apprentice. When Comey saw the TV screen with the breaking news, he laughed, thinking it was what he called a good practical joke. Comey's aides pulled him into a side office away from the FBI event he was attending in Los Angeles to tell him he really had been fired. Comey had just asked for more money for the FBI so it can continue its investigation into the Russia election meddling. He had recently revealed that the investigation continues and he'd been testifying for congressional investigators. Insiders say Comey had, three weeks ago, switched from weekly updates on the Trump-Russia investigation to daily updates. Comey had heard just about enough from Trump after Trump tweeted that Obama had wiretapped Trump Tower, Comey telling a colleague Trump is, quote, crazy. And Comey had just been asked by members of Congress to step up his investigation. It was the very next day after that request from Congress that Comey was fired by the man he was investigating. The White House says it's because Comey failed to charge Hillary Clinton after his investigation of her emails and because he had talked about that investigation publicly. But that was months and months ago. The timing this week suggests that the Trump administration fired Comey to put the brakes on the Trump-Russia investigation. Just last week, Trump said he still had faith in Director Comey. During the campaign, he praised Comey for his reveal about a second Clinton email investigation 11 days before the election. Now, Attorney General Jeff Sessions had also praised Comey back then. And now, both Trump and Sessions have fired Comey for doing what they had praised him for just before Election Day. The FBI investigation is now in the hands of Deputy Director Andrew McCabe, who broke White House protocol when he took aside Vice President Pence to say that a New York Times story was, quote, BS. That story, confirmed by multiple U.S. intelligence sources, said members of the Trump campaign team had had repeated contact with Russian spies and Russian government officials. Obstruction of justice might be defined by the firing of James Comey or by the firing of Sally Yates and the earlier attempt by the White House to keep Yates from testifying. Obstruction of justice was the first article of impeachment against disgraced President Richard M. Nixon. By the time of Comey's firing, Democrats were smelling a Watergate-style cover-up and renewed their calls for an independent investigation to keep politics out of our quest for the truth. Republicans, for the most part, disagree. But with this suspicious firing of James Comey, more Republicans are calling for an independent special prosecutor, including John McCain. Doubt has been expressed by other prominent Republicans, about a half dozen others, including the Republican head of the Senate Intelligence Committee, Richard Burr, who is also investigating the Trump-Russia connections. There is more reason than ever for serious concern about that FBI investigation and about the Justice Department that oversees it. Although Trump's Attorney General Jeff Sessions had recused himself, the investigation is now overseen by the Deputy Attorney General, who was chosen by Jeff Sessions. And Sessions, who'd supposedly recused himself from all things related to the campaigns of both Trump and Clinton, is the person who'd been tasked by the president 
with finding a reason to fire Comey. And it was Sessions who wrote the letter to Trump recommending that Comey be fired. So much for recusal. In Trump's rambling, you're fired letter to Comey, Trump went off topic, writing, I greatly appreciate you informing me on three separate occasions that I am not under investigation. That was more a message to the public than it was to Comey, who was, in fact, investigating Trump's closest advisor's ties to Russia. And Comey didn't even get that letter until after his firing had already been splashed onto that TV screen. Meanwhile, back at the FBI, while some agents are despondent over Comey's firing, most agents say they are more determined than ever to get to the truth about Trump and Russia. The Washington Post spoke with 30 sources at the FBI and the Justice Department who say it was Trump's anger and impatience over stopping the Russia talk that led to the Comey firing. As for Mike Flynn, the Senate Intelligence Committee has now subpoenaed him while a grand jury investigation has issued subpoenas to Flynn's associates as part of the Russia investigation. And the Treasury Department is investigating Trump's casinos and their association with known money launderers. And there are still some dedicated career professionals at the FBI and in the DOJ who are more determined than ever. And now there are subpoenas. Trump has just hired a Washington law firm to help him fight the Russia allegations. With subpoenas flying, the President of the United States has just lawyered up. Stuff just got real. By 110 days into the Trump administration, he still hadn't filled 470 of the 556 executive branch appointments that have to be approved by Congress. About four out of five top-level chairs are still unfilled. And Trump's only announced a fraction of the people he needs to nominate, and about half of them are still undergoing security and background checks. When it comes to delivering his campaign promises, Trump can make no progress without cabinet deputies and assistants, and he's only named four people for those 15 job openings. In 110 days in, Trump is his agenda's own worst enemy. And some of the people he's nominated for these jobs have withdrawn their names from consideration. Billionaire Vince Viola pulled out in February because of conflicts of interest. Trump is now faced with making a third choice for Army Secretary after the first two washed out. Now Tennessee Senator Mark Green has bowed out after he was called out for making disparaging comments about the LGBT community, including, quote, transgender is a disease. Green has also been called out about his deeds, including supporting a state bill that would have made it legal for mental health clinicians to deny service to anyone from the LGBT community and for supporting the bill that would ban transgender students from the public school restrooms they consider appropriate. Today's army is now more LGBT friendly with commanders saying they need every good soldier they can get. Green now says he had to withdraw from consideration because of a political attack upon him by Democrats. He says his remarks have been mischaracterized, but a damning audio tape was released by the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation that proved otherwise. So as we head for a fresh war with the Taliban in Afghanistan, we have no army secretary either. Yes, we are once again on a war footing with the Taliban in a war that's already involved the U.S. for a record-long 16 years. The Trump administration is considering sending up to 5,000 more American troops to Afghanistan to fight a resurgent Taliban. Trump has asked NATO allies to step up, 
allowing the U.S. to send 3,000 troops instead, on top of the 8,400 Americans already on the ground there. Officials say Trump wants to, quote, start winning again. The more cynical among us see it as a distraction from the increasingly dramatic Trump-Russia investigation. The Trump administration has also just approved giving weapons to the Kurds in Syria who are fighting ISIS against the wishes of the Turkish government, which considers the Kurds to be just another terror group. Such a move could deeply damage the already shaky relationship between the U.S. and Turkey, a relationship that's even more vital to the U.S. in its fight against ISIS. Meanwhile, back here in the States, a law passed just after the start of the Great Recession of 2008. It was a law to try to keep Wall Street greed from ever again driving our economy off a cliff. That law is now being gutted in Washington. Republicans led by Trump believe that the same law aimed at preventing another Great Recession has slowed our recovery from that recession and stands in the way of further economic growth. The law under attack is called Dodd-Frank. Without it, Banks can again make risky investments like the ones that drove the entire country into economic collapse and forced taxpayers to bail out the compulsive gamblers of Wall Street. It forced banks to keep enough money on hand to bail themselves out in the future, and it required each bank to undergo an annual financial health checkup. Dodd-Frank also put consumer protections in place, and those are also under attack by the new Republican government. In his first month in office, Trump signed an order that the Treasury Department look into scaling back Dodd-Frank rules. And now the Republican-led House Financial Services Committee has approved repealing big chunks of Dodd-Frank. That all now goes to the Republican-led House, but it would still have to clear the Senate. If the stripping of Dodd-Frank were to pass, it would be, to quote one Democrat, an invitation for another Great Recession, or worse, After getting off to a slow start, the U.S. economy is continuing to improve, even with Dodd-Frank. We landed 211,000 new jobs last month. With Dodd-Frank on the books, unemployment fell to 4.4%, the lowest it's been in 10 years, and about as low as that number has ever gone in history, ever. And the average wage increased by 7 cents an hour. The leisure and hospitality industry added 55,000 employees. Healthcare and social services added nearly 37,000 new workers. Retailers hired over 6,000 after cutting over 27,000 workers in March. The best news for many Americans is that Obamacare is still the law of the land. Pre-existing conditions, including pregnancy, are still covered for now. Expanded Medicaid and subsidies to make insurance affordable are still intact. At this point, it means little that the House voted last week to abolish the Affordable Care Act and in so doing, throw tens of millions of Americans off health care and Medicaid and giving that money instead to the wealthiest Americans in the form of a half-trillion-dollar tax break. Families making a quarter mil a year or more would get a $300 billion tax cut under the Republican plan. Patients with pre-existing conditions would face hugely higher premiums, as many of them are thrown into high-risk pools. The House vote means little, though, because the Senate has yet to vote on the bill, and it doesn't like what it's seen from the House, nor does it like what it's hearing from the American people. Republicans in the Senate don't want to endanger their political careers, as two dozen House Republicans did, by voting to repeal Obamacare in districts where Trump didn't win. 
Most of them voted to kill Obamacare without even reading the bill and without having hearings on it or getting it reviewed by the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. They voted to kill Obamacare even though their plan's been condemned by AARP and four major medical groups. They voted to kill it even though 87% of Americans want to keep coverage for pre-existing conditions. And they rushed it through in two days, just before an 11-day break, after House Speaker Paul Ryan had criticized Democrats for their push for a vote on Obamacare eight years ago. I don't think we should pass bills we haven't read, Ryan famously said back then. House Republicans made their move before Democrats had a chance to get opposition ads on the air, as Republicans had done in 2009. And they voted before the lawmakers would go home to hear what their constituents had to say. On the day of the House vote, Democrats sang, na na, hey hey, goodbye, to Republicans who may have just voted themselves out of office. Democrats have already raised millions of dollars just in the days that followed that House vote to work for the defeat of those representatives in next year's election. Many Senate Republicans don't want that blood on their hands. And then there would be the human cost of the House Republicans' plan, which would cut Medicaid by nearly a billion dollars as it serves 70 million people, a fourth of whom are low-income, disabled, and elderly, make insurance for older people five to seven times more expensive than for younger people, remove coverage for basic services, including ER visits and ambulance trips, cut money for mental health and drug treatment, drastically cut insurance subsidies to lower-income Americans, and let insurance companies deny coverage or jack the premiums for it on people with pre-existing conditions. If your pre-existing condition is pregnancy, the Republican plan would up your premiums by $17,000 a year. If you have rheumatoid arthritis, that coverage would cost you an extra $27,000 a year on top of what you already pay. Or you can go without under the House plan because insurance would be no longer required. It could be weeks before the Senate votes on any version of repeal and replace, or it could rewrite the bill from scratch. In the meantime, most Washington lawmakers are on an 11-day break in which they are getting an earful about what the House did last week. But to the new president, it was a victory, reminiscent of George W. Bush's premature proclamation of mission accomplished in Iraq. And just hours after Trump declared the House plan or an improved version of it would pass the Senate, he publicly told the visiting prime minister from Australia, quote, you have better health care than we do. Bernie Sanders quickly agreed, advising, let's take a look at the Australian system and let's move. Democrats are still eager to improve Obamacare, but not to replace it, and certainly not with this plan. President Obama chimed in Sunday evening as he accepted the John F. Kennedy Profile in Courage Award. Obama challenged lawmakers of both parties to show courage and speak up for the sick and the vulnerable. Used to be pretty easy going gig being a member of Congress. Not so long ago, you could get elected and be pretty much left alone by your constituents and their problems. Most voters were more occupied with reality TV or video games or sports to be bothered with what you were doing back in Washington. But that all changed after Trump was elected, and it's changed even more since the House voted to kill Obamacare and replace it with what many see as a nightmare. Now many Republicans don't like their long congressional recesses because it means going home to their districts to face people who want to talk to them about what they've done. Angry people. 
Many Republicans are avoiding having the usual town hall meetings on this 11-day break. They're not fun anymore now that more than a handful of people show up and now that the vast majority of those people are unhappy voters. In two states, Democratic congressmen are offering to explain to constituents in neighboring districts the votes of Republican colleagues who don't want to face those crowds. Republican Rod Bloom did return to his district in Iowa to face the press and the public, and it was not fun for him. First, he found himself walking out on a TV interview, disgusted that the reporter had asked him why his staff was screening the town hall attendees to make sure they were just from his district, especially since he does accept campaign donations from outside his district. Bloom's top two donors weren't just outside his district, they were outside his state. Bloom called the reporter's question ridiculous, took off his mic and headed for the door, muttering. A few hours later, he addressed that town hall and the screening hadn't helped. A thousand voters from Bloom's own district booed him at every turn as he tried to defend his vote to repeal Obamacare. Bloom even claimed it wasn't a repeal bill, that it only changed 10 or 20 percent of Obamacare. But he was booed again as he claimed people on Medicare and Medicaid wouldn't be affected by the Republican bill. His job, and the job of lawmaker in general, used to be much easier. The cost of Trump's weekends, the latest on North Korea and the week's other news, along with commentary from Bob Seska after this. Being a mom can be a thankless job. You know what I mean, because you know what you did as a kid, right? Now think about the things she did, the sacrifices she made to give you a better life. And remember all the times you've thought about something your mom taught you, wisdom you carry with you to this very day, maybe even repeat. Tell her you remember as often as possible, especially on Mother's Day. Pro Flowers is the perfect way to tell her. Beautiful flowers guaranteed fresh for seven days of your money back. And they're not kidding about that. I've used Pro Flowers time and again, and they have never let me down. She's always delighted when that box from Pro Flowers arrives at her door. And right now, because you listen to this report, get Mom Pro Flowers 100 Blooms Bouquet in a glass vase for just $19.99 plus shipping and handling. For five bucks more, they'll also include some gourmet chocolates. Tell mom you remember with a hundred blooms and a glass vase for just $19.99 plus shipping and help power this show with the code R-E-L-M at proflowers.com. Just click the blue microphone in the upper right corner and type in the code R-E-L-M. And don't forget to include all the moms in your life when you go to proflowers.com. Thank you for supporting my sponsors and for supporting this free news through the PayPal button at buzzburbank.com. Trump did not go to his luxury golf resort in Florida this past weekend. He went to the one he owns in New Jersey instead for a three-day weekend. The Bedminster Club is just 35 miles west of the Manhattan skyline of New York. Staying that much closer to D.C. didn't really save the taxpayers any money. That trip was just as expensive as the Florida weekends. Trump's enjoyed a taxpayer expense for half the weekends of his presidency. Trump was tweeting that he'd saved the country money by going to New Jersey, with an exclamation mark, of course. Jersey is cheaper than a visit to New York, where security costs taxpayers over $300,000 a day. With the arrival of spring, the weather's getting hotter in the Sunshine State and nicer in the Garden State. If Trump spends most of his summer weekends up north in Jersey, it'll cost taxpayers another $300,000. 
The taxpayers of Palm Beach County, Florida, meanwhile, find themselves stuck with the tab for Trump security in the colder months. They're still out $4 million that hasn't been reimbursed by the federal government. In other words, the rest of us. His travel budget has already topped $26 million in just over three months. That much money could have helped 4,000 Medicaid recipients, fed 63,000 public school students, or 9,000 Meals on Wheels recipients. Trump, who's been critical of wasteful government spending, made seven trips to Mar-a-Lago in just 11 weeks and played golf 14 times in 17 days. One of the most powerful men in the White House and Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner says he's no longer involved in his family's real estate business, but his sister is, and she's been soliciting business from China. Over the weekend, Nicole Kushner-Meyer was in Beijing chatting up Chinese investors about a project here in the States. She needed $150 million to finance a housing development in Jersey City. And she did a little White House name-dropping, including that of Jared Kushner. She told the potential investors the project, quote, means a lot to me and my entire family. The investors say they believe she meant to include the American president in that entire family. A photo of Donald Trump was part of her presentation. And the investors were advised to act quickly before the U.S. visa program got more cumbersome for foreign workers. It appears she offered to fast-track work visas for a quick investment. Journalists were tossed out of the publicly advertised event before Nicole spoke, and when approached afterward about the apparent conflict of interest, she told reporters, Please leave us alone. Former National Intelligence Director James Clapper hinted in congressional testimony this week that Trump's business ties to Russia are also being investigated. Russia also tried to influence the French presidential election, as it has done in other European countries and here in the U.S. But it didn't work in France. There, the moderate candidate won by a 30% margin over the candidate more similar to Donald Trump. Trump had thrown his support behind Marine Le Pen, who, like him, is anti-immigrant and favors a stronger border and was the voice of an extreme right wing of her country. Inheriting her party from her fascist father, Le Pen would have pulled France out of the European Union, causing the total collapse of the EU. With the election of independent moderate Emmanuel Macron, France will stay in the European Union and that union will remain standing. Macron got an endorsement from President Obama. But in that final nail-biting moment of the campaign, it appeared Macron might be in trouble. His email accounts had been hacked. Documents were dumped onto the Internet less than an hour before the traditional French media blackout on political coverage in the 24 hours before voting begins. Macron had been cyber-attacked in the same way and by the same people as hacked Hillary Clinton. And as with Clinton, the timing was impeccable and fake emails had been mixed in to create confusion and doubt. And even though Macron's emails were all over the Internet, by the time voting began, French voters chose him in a landslide. France is now also investigating Russian election meddling. The presidential election in South Korea didn't go quite so well for the U.S. Its new president wants to be a little less close with the U.S. and more close to North Korea, and he opposes the new billion-dollar missile defense system installed in South Korea by the U.S. 
He, too, won by a landslide with a record turnout at the polls. Moon Jae-in is the son of refugees from the Korean War of the 1950s, and we are waiting to see what effect his presidency has on the tension between the U.S. and North Korea. Moon says meeting with Trump is his first priority. We had another nuclear scare this week, but it had nothing to do with North Korea. It had to do with a remote part of Washington state. A tunnel collapsed at the old plutonium plant there where they made more fuel for the first atomic bomb and for nine nuclear power plants along the Columbia River. The Hanford Nuclear Reservation, built in the 1950s, was closed in the early 70s. It's still contaminated after processing tens of thousands of tons of uranium, and it still stores tons of radioactive waste. The tunnel that collapsed contained no people, but it did contain a string of railroad cars filled with radioactive waste and a litany of other hazardous chemicals. Whether any of that was exposed to the air above ground isn't clear, but people at the site were evacuated. Others were told to stay indoors and to secure their ventilation systems, to only use indoor air, and to refrain from eating or drinking anything. The U.S. Department of Energy, under the direction of Dancing with the Stars alumni Rick Perry, set up an emergency operations office. Donald Trump believes he can negotiate a plan for permanent peace in the Middle East, something no American president's been able to do over six decades of trying. There is such hatred, says Trump, adding, but hopefully there won't be such hatred for very long. We will get this done, says Trump, who has mostly favored Israel in the conflict and says he doesn't care if it's a one-state or two-state solution. The Palestinian Authority gives over $300 million a year to the families of suicide bombers who kill Israelis. The more Israelis a suicidal Palestinian kills, the more money his or her family gets. In Washington, Republican senators want to cut off financial aid to the Palestinians, some of which may go into that suicide bombers reward fund. The Palestinian terror group Hamas seems optimistic about these negotiations, although no date for the talks has been set. Later this month, Trump will travel to Israel, Saudi Arabia, and the Vatican to talk Middle East peace. We're hearing a lot of references to Watergate in the nation's examination of Trump's ties to Russia. I covered Watergate back in the day, but Salon.com writer Bob Seska called this one Here's his commentary this week. Thank you, Buzz. Back in July of 2016, there was considerable speculation about the kind of president Donald Trump might be. This was mostly before we learned that it was the Russian government and its intelligence services that were behind the hacking of the Democratic National Committee, which happened to have been the first in a long series of Watergate-style bombshell news stories to drop during the campaign. On July 19th, however, I published an article on Salon.com in which I compared Trump to Richard Nixon and how the then-presumptive GOP nominee was absolutely capable of engaging in obstructions of justice similar to the Saturday Night Massacre, a harrowingly breathtaking event during the final days of the Richard Nixon presidency. By now, you've probably heard or read about the massacre, so I won't elaborate yet again. The quickie version goes like this. Nixon fired two attorneys general in a row because they each, in turn, refused to fire the special prosecutor investigating Watergate. In the end, the solicitor general at the time, Robert Bork, fired the Watergate prosecutor, Archibald Cox. All in all, it was the beginning of the end for Nixon. In my article, I observed, quote, when we review what happened on October 20th, 1973, it's not difficult to envision Trump engaging in the same chicanery. The Saturday Night Massacre? 
Trump would easily do the same thing in his first 100 days, and it'd barely dent his approval ratings. Better yet, his voters would adore him for it. Adore him, unquote. Damn it, I was off by 11 days, and as of this reporting, we don't yet know what Trump's approval numbers will look like once the first post-Comey firing polls drop. But social media reaction from Trump's voters and fanboys has been overwhelmingly positive. Of course. The point is that Trump's behavior is shocking, but not surprising, chiefly because we've seen it all before. The major difference, however, is that Trump is far worse than Nixon. At the very least, Nixon was a well-educated, articulate lawyer who understood how the government worked. He was aware of history and his place in it. Indeed, he understood the system enough to know the dark alleys and loopholes within it, and he exploited those gaps with increasing fury as the Watergate investigation grew closer to an existential crisis for his presidency. It's safe to assume that Trump will respond in a similar fashion as the Trump-Russia story advances closer and closer to his desk. Much like Nixon, Trump's actions from this point forward will continue to grow increasingly despotic as he desperately attempts to kill the investigation. Even before the sudden firing of FBI Director James Comey, we watched as Trump fired former Acting Attorney General Sally Yates on the Monday after she informed the White House that Mike Flynn, the then National Security Advisor, was very likely compromised. We watched as the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Devin Nunes, was looped into a madcap plot to reverse engineer Trump's repeatedly debunked tweets about wiretaps. We watched as U.S. Attorney Preet Bharara was fired at around the same time the prosecutor was investigating Russian associates of Trump advisor Carter Page. Toss into the mix a growing collection of obnoxious, generally whiny tweets by the president about how the Russia story is nothing more than a hoax, and thus we have more than enough evidence of criminally Nixonian behavior, coupled with political incompetence and backstopped by a legion of internet and cable news superfans. The latter, by the way, is the rocket fuel on which Trump is counting to get him through all of this. No doubt Trump has many more autocratic impeachment-worthy deeds up his sleeve, and he'll use every last trick as Trump-Russia closes in around him. But his last refuge will be the electric embrace of his supporters, who mostly don't give a flying rip about Russia. Just 28% of Trump voters agree that Russia influenced the election, and only 4% of Trump voters believe he colluded with Russia to do so. All they care about is the cultural impact of having a misogynistic white nationalist president who continues to deliver all of their favorite catchphrases and Fox News bromides while relentlessly trolling the news media. As long as Skinner plays Freebird, Trump voters will remain fully stoked for their guy. Suffice to say, Nixon didn't enjoy the latitude afforded to Trump by social media and the bottomless cup of disinformation therein. Nixon also didn't enjoy the unwavering support of the GOP Congress. It's unclear why exactly the Republican caucus is so completely motivated to flack for Trump, but it's clearly despite the fact that the president is utterly toxic and has been since day one. They don't seem to care. Early Wednesday, for example, Mitch McConnell didn't hesitate before he declared that there would be no more Russia investigations, including special hearings to probe the firing of Comey. Few, if any, Republicans will dare to criticize the president's actions on anything, much less his sloppy treatment of the Russia story. Along those lines, imagine if the Russia attack came in the form of a nuclear device that was detonated in a major U.S. city. A more destructive attack than a cyber one, sure, but still an attack on American sovereignty, our people, and our democracy. Now imagine the president calling that attack a hoax, while the Republican Congress silently shrugged its shoulders. We have no choice but to wonder what's in it for Congress. 
Analogies aside, why the lack of outrage over a foreign attack on our political institutions? Why such loyalty to a chief executive whose approval numbers dropped to 36% even before the Comey news? At what point does having Trump's jagged autograph on their legislation fail to make up for the myriad political liabilities commensurate with being linked to such a loser? The answer to these questions remains to be seen, though if you're leaning toward compromise, you might be headed in the right direction. In that respect, we shouldn't forget that Russia also reportedly hacked the Republican National Committee as well, contrary to Trump's lies about the same. Ultimately, we're looking at Nixon 2.0, with significantly more power to potentially overcome whatever investigatory hurdles appear in his path. Consequently, Watergate-style investigations, as well as resistance by the opposition, must be amplified accordingly to meet the strength and persistence of the cover-up. Trump's slow-motion Saturday Night Massacre is just a prologue. What comes next will make Comey's firing seem quaint. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thanks, Bob. Catch him every Tuesday and Thursday on the Bob Seska Show here at RealmNetwork.com, and I am proud to now be one of the regular guests on that program. I'll see you there Tuesday. The Obama plan to stop the mass jailing of low-level drug offenders is on its way out in the Trump administration. Attorney General Jeff Sessions says he's reviewing the policy, which could lead to once again handing drug offenders the toughest possible sentences. Sessions has also called on law enforcement to step up its pursuit of drug cases. Sessions is also considering letting prosecutors make the punishments even tougher. This will be good news for the privately owned prison industry. But as with other Trump policies, his drug policy is confusing. In his inaugural speech, Trump spoke of, quote, drugs that have stolen too many lives and robbed our country of so much unrealized potential. He had repeatedly promised to help America get control of its substance abuse problems, especially opioids. But alongside Trump is ultra-conservative advisor Steve Bannon, who's spoken of deconstructing the administrative state. So in Trump's budget proposal, the White House Office of National Drug Control Policy would lose 95% of its funding. 33 people involved in everything from research to intelligence would be out of work, and grants to anti-drug programs would be cut in nearly every state. Such a cut would devastate programs for rehabilitation and drug education. That agency, its head often referred to as the president's drug czar, was created by Reagan 35 years ago. The White House says Trump's budget proposal is actually a work in progress and that it's too early to judge or even report on these specifics. As recently as Monday of this week, the Trump campaign website still listed his proposal for a Muslim ban. Administration officials had stopped calling it that by the time it went into effect, but as recently as this week, it was still on his campaign website as a Muslim ban. Right now, that ban is in limbo, held up by at least two federal court injunctions declaring the ban on travel from six Muslim countries to be unconstitutional, an overreach of authority by this president, and that it is in reality what Trump promised throughout his campaign, a Muslim ban. Monday, the Trump administration lawyers went to an appeals court in Virginia to ask that the injunction be lifted so the ban could finally go into effect. The judges were skeptical, one of them pointing out that Muslim ban was at the time still on Trump's campaign webpage. The Trump campaign has now removed those words from that page. One Trump lawyer argued that the order isn't directed at any one group, prompting a judge to ask, in what sense is it neutral? 
The country selected, said the judge, are almost all Muslim. The Trump administration lawyers will try again next week in front of an appeals court in Seattle. If they fail in both Virginia and Seattle, as they are expected to do, their next stop is the United States Supreme Court. In these Trump days, a top government priority has become protecting American citizens from the crimes of immigrants, even though immigrants commit fewer than half as many crimes per capita as do the citizens. Homeland Security now even has a hotline where victims and their families can get federal help, including help with the prosecution and deportation of suspects. A case often cited by those favoring increased deportation was the rape of a 14-year-old girl at Rockville High in Maryland. Two undocumented young men, an 18-year-old from Guatemala and a 17-year-old from El Salvador, were accused in the attack. The young men were charged as an adult and jailed without bond. White House spokesman Sean Spicer, when asked about the case, said, Part of the reason that the president has made illegal immigration and crackdown such a big deal is because of tragedies like this. The girl's claim that the guys had pushed her into a restroom was contradicted by school surveillance video. The 17-year-old is now free again. The rape charges against both have been dropped. The 18-year-old still remains behind bars for sexting with a 14-year-old, so he still faces child pornography charges and probably deportation. Immigrants now have even more reason to be fearful in Texas. There, over the objections of every police chief in Texas, Governor Greg Abbott has signed a bill that bans sanctuary cities from that state. The new law threatens to jail sheriffs if they don't turn undocumented people they encounter over to the feds. That's why immigrants are so fearful of even reporting crime these days, much less committing it. And that's why so many police chiefs oppose this new law proudly passed by Texas Republicans. Texas lawmen are now required to ask everyone they stop about their immigration status. Critics say the new law violates the state's own constitution. The new law is to go into effect September 1st unless it's stopped by the courts. In the meantime, police officers and sheriff's deputies can be fined over $25,000 a day each for failing to comply with the new Texas law, and there is jail time for officers who don't cooperate. And State Attorney General Ken Paxton has started filing lawsuits against local cop shops in and around liberal Austin, Texas, in towns that have declared themselves sanctuary cities. Nationally, a federal judge has so far blocked Trump's executive order that would strip federal money from places that declare themselves sanctuary cities or states. When it gets oppressively hot in Georgia this summer, that's when students will finally be allowed to carry guns on college campuses. Despite his own doubts, Georgia Governor Nathan Deal has signed a Republican bill that allows students to pack heat in classrooms, dormitories, auditoriums, and elsewhere. Republicans in the gun lobby finally convinced Deal to sign the bill he vetoed last year, Georgia lawmakers calling it an important safety measure. Arkansas was the first state to pass such a law, making Georgia the second. At least 10 states allow guns on campus across the country. Lawmakers in 20 other states have proposed it. The campus carry laws first started appearing in the same year that 30 people died on the Virginia Tech campus at the hands of a student with a gun. Penn State is the epicenter of another scandal, this one involving manslaughter. Eighteen members of Beta Theta Pi, along with the fraternity itself, 
face a long list of criminal charges, including felonies, after the death of a 19-year-old pledge, aggravated assault, hazing, giving booze to a minor, and tampering with evidence for waiting 12 hours to call for help after that pledge fell down the stairs. The brothers said they thought he'd sleep it off, so they moved his body to a couch. The next day, they saw it was worse than they'd thought and called for help. The pledge, 19-year-old engineering student Timothy Piazza, died the next day in a hospital. His death has been ruled accidental. The frat house is closed, and alcohol is now banned from all other Greek houses. Beta Theta Pi faces 150 criminal charges in a case delivering more shockwaves to campuses across the country. Walmart wants to track your groceries. An update on net neutrality, airline outrage, monkeys in the news, Omar's movie preview, and more in the third and final segment, up next. A smooth, clean shave from a blade that feels expensive but comes straight to my door at half the cost of the big-name brands. That's what I love about shaving with products from Harry's, from the hefty balanced handle that fits your hand to the precision-engineered five-blade cartridges that come with a trimmer blade, a lubricating strip, and a travel cover uh, to Harry's rich slathering shave gel. It all started when two regular guys named Jeff and Andy got tired of getting ripped off on blade prices. One big company in particular relentlessly jacked their prices and made a fortune while we all spent a fortune. Jeff and Andy wanted to fix shaving, so they started by cutting out the middlemen. They bought their own factory, one that's been making blades for over a century, so now they can ship top-quality blades directly to you. The result? Quality products at your door for half of what you've been paying. Half. That's the Harry story. Be part of it. Jeff and Andy are so confident you'll love their products, they want you to go to harrys.com right now to try their new shave set free. A $13 value, but all you pay is the shipping. Sign up at harrys.com slash R-E-L-M. And because you listen to this newscast, Jeff and Andy will even throw in a free post-shave balm. But only if you log on to harrys.com slash R-E-L-M. The airline industry continues to suffer turbulence on the ground. A brawl broke out in the Fort Lauderdale Airport Monday as the paying public vented its anger about one canceled flight after another. Their target was Spirit Airlines, which had canceled hundreds of flights this week because of a contract dispute with its pilots. Tens of thousands of customers were inconvenienced, to say the least. Many were bumped from canceled flights more than once. Eight out of ten times, Spirit pilots just weren't showing up at the gate. They were tired of working without a contract for nearly two years. They're tired of working for less money than other airline pilots and they're worried about their retirements. Spirit is now suing the pilots over their work slowdown. Monday in Fort Lauderdale, passengers just forced off a canceled flight, may have been angry at Spirit as they reapproached the ticket counter, but they wound up fighting with passengers trying to get ticketed for the next flight. Sheriff's deputies were called in to restore order, and three people got arrested. Delta was the biggest airline to give itself a black eye over this past week. Delta staff forced a family to give up the seat they'd purchased for their two-year-old, ordering the father to hold the toddler in his lap, despite FAA warnings against that practice. Quoting from the first words on the child safety page of the FAA's website, the safest place for your child on an airplane is in a government-approved 
child safety restraint device, not in your lap. It continues, your arms aren't capable of holding your child securely, especially during unexpected turbulence. But that's what Delta insisted from the family, even though its own policy requires a reserved seat for kids two and older. Delta's own guidelines, quote, prefer the child sit in a seat with an approved restraint. And the family had that approved child safety seat. Still, Delta, behaving as airlines do, threatened to throw the family in jail for that vague and infamous federal crime of interfering with the crew's duties. The family had to pay an extra $2,000 to take a flight the next day. Delta apologized to the family and offered to refund their expenses and throw in a little extra to try to make things right. Which airline will be in the news this week for being unreasonable and hiding behind that vague law about interfering with the crew? And how much longer must this continue? American may be facing a class action suit thanks to a federal court ruling about a $15 bag fee. When the California woman went to court to get her $15 back, the lower court threw out her case. But a federal appeals court this week overruled that lower court, and her case will now go forward, possibly becoming a class action lawsuit that could force American to refund millions of $15 fees for luggage the airline ultimately lost or delivered much later than the passenger. When this California woman didn't get her bag, she wanted her 15 bucks back. American said no. Saying no to that 15 bucks could now cost the company tens, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars if that class action lawsuit also gets a green light. Meanwhile, back at United, which may have accidentally killed the world's biggest rabbit, investigations are in the cards. The airline had already said it was investigating how young Simon died in or after a United flight from London to Chicago. The owners of the 10-month-old giant rabbit who paid over $2,000 for all three feet of it have called for an independent investigation. There are reports that the rabbit was accidentally locked in a freezer at the Chicago airport before being transferred to a flight from Chicago to Kansas City. United denies that claim, but there cannot be an autopsy on Simon, or as it's properly called for animals, a necropsy. The owners say United cremated Simon's body without consent, and in doing so, United destroyed the evidence of just how Simon died. The owners of the rabbit are not kidding around. They include a retired executive of Wells Fargo, and other high-profile financial investors. They have the money to pursue this, and the will. And they say that if United doesn't bring in an independent investigator, they will begin filing their lawsuits. Uber, meanwhile, is now under a federal criminal investigation for using software that allowed it to operate even where ride-sharing is banned the software is called Grayball. It helped Uber management avoid picking up passengers who might happen to be local officials or anyone who might blow the whistle on their illegal activity. It allowed Uber to operate illegally and undetected, a scheme apparently approved by Uber's own lawyers. This is Uber's third scandal of the year. In January, it paid $20 million to settle with the feds over misleading potential drivers about how much money they'd make. In February, an ex-Uber engineer blogged about systemic sexism and sexual harassment in the company. Uber responded to that 
by hiring former Attorney General Eric Holder to conduct an in-house investigation. Now Uber is being accused of dodging local laws and regulations that affect its business. Johnson & Johnson, a name that's long been trusted by American families, is still facing over 3,000 lawsuits for apparently ignoring warnings of a link between its talcum powder products and ovarian cancer. That's 3,000 lawsuits to go after a jury ordered the company to pay a Virginia woman $110 million for her ovarian cancer. The world's cancer doctors declared talc a possible carcinogen 11 years ago. Johnson & Johnson took a defensive crouch over its famous baby powder and shower-to-shower line of powders and is still defending the safety of its products. But in the past two years, Johnson & Johnson has lost this argument in four separate court cases. It's had one court victory and got two other cases thrown out. Many products on the market today use cornstarch instead of talc, which is a mineral found in rocks. Sargento has just recalled seven of its cheeses because of possible listeria contamination. You are advised to throw them out. Bumblebee Foods is pleading guilty to federal charges it conspired to fix prices on tuna and sardines sold in pouches and cans. Bumblebee, which was founded by some Oregon fishermen in the late 1800s, is accused of conspiring with the other two big tuna companies, Starkist and Chicken of the Sea, to keep prices artificially high. The fine for Bumblebee is $25 million, but that fine could grow to $82 million if the company allows itself to be sold as it had planned. Walmart wants to plant a sort of tracking chip in your groceries. Walmart has applied for a patent on this idea, planting a chip in or on the stuff it sells so it can tap you on the shoulder when it's time to buy more. Milk, for instance. Walmart software could watch how fast you go through milk and how old the milk is in your refrigerator. It's Walmart's run at the Amazon Dash button, which already allows customers to automatically reorder everything from carbonated soft drinks to toothpaste. There's even talk of planting chips in articles of clothing at Walmart to remind you to retire that item and replace it with something new from Walmart. Patent pending 2017. An Air Force space plane has become the first such vehicle to spend this much time in orbit and successfully return to U.S. soil. On its fourth flight, the unmanned X-37B spent nearly two years in orbit before making a space shuttle-like landing in Florida on Sunday. The Air Force didn't announce the landing until the last minute and didn't say why the craft returned to Florida when all other space plane flights had ended in California. The Air Force also doesn't say what the unmanned space plane was doing all that time in orbit. In the aftermath of the marches for science and the climate, both have taken another blow this past week from the Trump administration. The EPA has fired five of its top scientists and announced plans to replace them with people from the very industries that the EPA regulates. The five scientists were there to keep the EPA on mission and on the right track. Trump is still planning and proposing huge cuts in the EPA budget with the deepest cuts in scientific research. Over the objections of those fired scientists, the new EPA chief had promised to restore the coal mining industry, moving the nation forward into the past. Science will be ignored in the Trump quest for government deregulation, 
The EPA has already removed its extensive webpage dedicated to climate change and rolled back rules protecting clean water. EPA Chief Scott Pruitt, meanwhile, has now recused himself from lawsuits against the EPA, the same lawsuits he had filed as Attorney General for the oil state of Oklahoma. We may soon once again have only one phone company. The country's two biggest cable providers, Comcast and Charter, have struck a deal to share a wireless phone network since both also want to get into the wireless business. Together, they may now buy T-Mobile or Sprint. Charter's plan to buy out Verizon has been put off for a year. But it's not just phones. Charter has already overtaken Time Warner Cable as competition dwindles in both TV and wireless. And it all happens in the middle of a price war between the wireless companies that are still standing on their own. And in another major blow to Fox, here comes the new Fox. The politically conservative Sinclair Broadcasting Group is buying up all the Tribune TV stations and networks, making Sinclair the single biggest owner of TV stations in the U.S., with stations in 72 U.S. markets, including New York, Chicago, Denver, Baltimore, and Miami. Fox was among the companies hoping to land the Tribune Media Group, but now Sinclair, the company that wants to be the next Fox, now owns nearly a third of Fox's affiliates. And the number of companies controlling the media continues to shrink as independent news continues right here. When the FCC's comment website crashed Sunday night, it says it wasn't because of what comedian John Oliver had just said on HBO. The FCC says it was a cyber attack that shut down the page, not Oliver encouraging viewers to object to the commission's plan to undo net neutrality. To get to the FCC's comment page on your own is extremely difficult. There is nothing user-friendly about it. But Oliver made it easier for everyone to comment by registering the domain gofccyourself.com and linking that directly to the FCC page that allows people to comment on Commission Chairman Ajit Pai's plan to reverse the rule that ensures net neutrality. Without that rule, Comcast, for example, could give Netflix a faster download speed than Hulu or give Netflix a faster download speed than a small company you may want to start online. The last time the FCC website crashed was in 2014 when John Oliver asked viewers to comment on net neutrality as it was being considered as a new policy. Tens of thousands of people have commented so far this time at gofccyourself.com, including me. It's still a bit tricky, so click on the little blue word express in the lower right part of the page to successfully make your comment. Guardians of the Galaxy was the top movie on U.S. and Canadian screens last week as it debuted with a jaw-dropping $145 million in ticket sales. No other movie even cleared $9 million. Can any new movie compete this weekend? Here's this week's movie preview from Realm Network Arts and Entertainment Editor Omar Latiri. Brought to you by Fandango. Opening this weekend, May 12, 2017. In limited release, we have The Wall, a tense war thriller directed by Born Identity director Doug Lyman. 
two American soldiers are trapped by a lethal sniper with only an unsteady wall between them. Starring Aaron Taylor Johnson, John Cena, and Leith Knackley, The Wall is rated R. We also have the romantic comedy Paris Can Wait. Diane Lane plays Anne, a woman who unexpectedly finds herself taking a car trip from Cannes to Paris with a business associate of her husband. The subsequent trip features sights, cuisine, humor, and romance that reawaken Anne's senses and gives her a new lust for life. Also starring Alec Baldwin, Paris Can Wait is rated PG. In wide release, we have Snatched, a comedy starring Amy Schumer and Goldie Hawn about a mother and daughter who take an exotic vacation with unexpected results. Rated R. And finally, we have King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. Robbed of his birthright, Arthur comes up the hard way in the back alleys of the city. But once he pulls the sword from the stone, he is forced to acknowledge his true legacy, whether he likes it or not. Starring Charlie Hunnam, Jude Law, Jaiman Hunsu, and Eric Bana, King Arthur, Legend of the Sword is rated PG-13. For Buzz Burbank News and Comment, I'm Omar Ladiri. Thanks, Omar. For theaters and showtimes, previews, tickets, and so much more, and to support this free news, please use and bookmark the Fandango link you'll find at buzzburbank.com. We don't have any pictures or video yet, so you won't see this on TV or the Internet, but they're pretty sure there's a monkey on the loose in Oklahoma. There's been at least one sighting around the intersection of West 10th and North Wilson in Sand Springs, Oklahoma, Wendy Bradley says it scared the tar out of me when she saw what she believes was, quote, a pretty good-sized monkey. She says it was the color of an orangutan but had a tail like a spider monkey. Wendy is the only person we know of who's actually laid eyes on this monkey, but other neighbors say they believe they've heard monkey calls in their neighborhood lately. Monkeys are old news in Florida and have been since the 1930s when rhesus macaques were brought to Silver Spring State Park to make a river cruise more entertaining. Over the years, some of the monkeys escaped and multiplied. Decades later, there are still some 200 monkeys living in that north-central part of Florida near our home office in Ocala. Sometimes they show up in human neighborhoods. There have been scattered sightings for months in Apopka, They've even caught monkeys on video there. But in Fruitland Park, 30 miles away, it appears an entire family of monkeys has moved into a neighborhood known as Water's Edge. There goes the neighborhood. Neighbor Penny Testerman grumbled, as you can see, he's knocked all the oranges down. She also says this one peed from the edge of her roof. Fish and wildlife officials are asking that all sightings be reported and that no one feed the monkeys as they tend to get aggressively insistent after that. In Austria, the Green Party is teaching women how to urinate while standing. The local Green Party wing in Lower Austria occasionally holds women's breakfast in which they discuss political and social issues. The topic this past weekend was unclean toilets, especially at sporting events and music festivals where sitting to urinate is disgusting. Women in the meeting were given tips, including how to build devices to make standing to urinate easier. Men from the Green Party were outside handling security since the party says it had gotten about the event many nasty emails. A North Dakota man is facing a fine of nearly $1,000 for speeding in Canada. The speed limit sign said 100, so that's what he drove, 100 miles an hour. What the North Dakotan didn't realize but should have 
is that Canada uses the metric system, and he was driving nearly twice their speed limit. He was doing 168 in a 100 zone. He hadn't read the fine print that indicates kilometers per hour. It might be enough to make him lose his North Dakota driver's license, but Canada politely didn't charge him with dangerous driving. A New Hampshire woman got her car impounded and may have to pay $2,400 in fines after she tried to fake her windshield vehicle inspection sticker. She tried to replicate the current sticker color by using a cheese wrapper. Quoting police, we can't even file this under the A for effort category. Two college students, having failed in their first attempt to steal their final exams from the science building, tried a second time by crawling through the ventilation ducts at 2 a.m. one night last week. They were caught by the professor who was still there working late. The boys now face burglary charges and big trouble back at the University of Kentucky. Drug smugglers don't just try to sneak past border guards in cars. In Arizona, a woman tried using the pedestrian lane to cross into the U.S. from Mexico. Agents found she had disguised $45,000 worth of heroin as generous buttocks. Baby had three pounds of heroin back. In the Central American country of Colombia, a 28-year-old woman appeared at a hospital complaining of severe stomach pain. Small wonder, surgery reveals she had swallowed about $8,000 bills, American. She says she had raised the money selling electronics from around the house so she could take a trip to Panama. When her husband demanded some of the money, she swallowed it, she says. Just under $6,000 was recovered from her gut intact. The rest was digested. The money's now in the hands of government officials who are investigating whether the woman perhaps planned to smuggle the money out of the country. Just to the north in Pennsylvania, a man was trying to scare possums out of his yard with a backyard fire and in the process did $50,000 damage to his wooden house. In Sioux Falls, South Dakota, the week before, a man was arrested for running into his burning house to rescue two cans of Bud Ice Premium, despite firefighters' orders. If you're an Australian crab and a guy puts you in his beer cooler, what do you do? You use your claw to pop open a bottle of beer. Actually, you pinch at anything you can, and the man intentionally held the bottle to make it possible for the crab to pop the top. And finally, a guy in Pakistan has just made the Guinness Book by smashing 35 coconuts with his head in 60 seconds, a world record for a thing you didn't know was a thing. Black belt martial artist Mohammed Rashid's official title is the guy who broke the most green coconuts with his head in one minute. He used his head to draw milk from each coconut, even if it took more than one try per coconut. Rashid also holds the world record for most soda cans crushed with elbow in one minute. It's always good to have a second skill to fall back on. I'm Buzz Burbank, thank you for listening. And thanks for supporting the shows and sponsors at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comments. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.